Our New Testament reading, as we continue our study in Revelation, is found in the 14th chapter of Revelation, beginning to read with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the word of the Lord. Look at these verses. Let's pray as always and ask the Father to teach us. There's only one way that you'll be taught this morning, and it's not by John Sartell. The only way we'll be taught is if the Father speaks by the power of his Spirit in this place. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for how you've answered prayers in this place, the prayers of your priests. All of us are priests together. Jesus has called each of us to be priests. And when we gather as a church, we're a whole congregation of priests. And when we pray, when we bring the world before you, like you've commanded, you hear us. Thank you for how you've healed physically and how you've healed spiritually and how you've healed marriages and how you've healed families. Thank you for your blessings of vocation and blessings of education for which we've prayed. Father, teach us to pray more. Teach us to be better priests, better priests for each other, better priests for our families, better priests for our husbands, very better priests for our wives, better priests for our parents and grandparents, better priests for our neighbors, for this city, better priests for this state and for this country. This morning, very specifically, Father, we thank you for how you've answered prayer and have blessed Dr. Cruz, blessed John Cruz, and given him some relief Thank you. We pray for Kaki and John this morning that above everything else they would know your presence in that farmhouse, that they would know your blessings, that somehow they would see and remember the cross and the gospel, that they would remember that you are their father. We pray for Kate Morrison's father. We pray that you would ease her pain and bring comfort to her. Bless John, Father. Bless John Morrison as he cares for her. 
caused them each to be a comfort to each other and a comfort even to John and Kaki, and John and Kaki a comfort to them. Oh, Father, we lay them before you and we ask for healing and blessing. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear you teach us, that we would hear your voice in our hearts. We're very simply your children. You know this. We're your children. And we've gathered here this morning, and we're asking you to tell us a story one more time. Tell us some part of the story in a deeper way, in a more profound way. Speak in a way that would change us, Father, everyone, maybe some of us for the very first time. We pray when we leave here, we will know that you have spoken. Yes, Father, one more prayer as your priest. We pray that you would bless Sarah and Lucas and bring healing to her. Bless Sean as he cares for her. Bless her to be an encouragement to him. Bless him to be an encouragement to her. We pray that you would bring healing in that house. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. <laughs> Learning to see the unseen reality. Revelation 14. One through five is a powerful, powerful scene. It may not have seemed like that to you when we read it, but this is a powerful, powerful scene. And Jesus meant it to be that way when he gave the vision to John. Now, why is it powerful? Well, for two entire chapters, John has been watching the dragon make war on the people of God. He's been watching a vision involving many antichrists during the history of the church. And in the, the two great beasts, as they brought a persecution on the church that was beyond and will be beyond imagination. Many of you said to me, you said to me this week, you've said it over the last two weeks. You said, John, I don't think I want to be around when that one last consummate antichrist comes on the stage. Well, folks, that's what Christians have said all through history. Many folks thought that way when Caligula and Nero came to, the, came to power in John's day. They didn't want these men. Many folks thought that way in Germany and Russia when Hitler and Stalin came to power. These antichrists, ushered in times of great suffering for the people of God. Now that's, you know, so it's a natural response to say, you know what, I don't think I want to be any part of that. I don't want to be here then. So, God knows that. What is the very next scene? What's the next scene after chapter 13. What does Jesus say in response to Satan's evil period of domination? He shows John, the apostle John, a scene, a vision that is absolutely thrilling. I love this. 
Look how it opens. Verse 1. Then I looked. You need to know that the, he, that the Greek word for look there is used, I think it's nine times. No, 12 times in the book of Revelation. 12 times. The next word, behold, look, behold, behold is used 27 times in the book of Revelation. So for 39 times in Revelation, John is saying, look, behold. Now, Revelation is not like Romans. It's not a book of didactical, doctrinal teaching. That's not what Revelation is. That's what Romans is, not Revelation. It's not like Acts. Acts is a historical narrative of events in the early church. That's not what this is. As the ascended Jesus is being revealed in glory, how's he being revealed? With visions, with graphic scenes that are full of symbolic figures and they're played out all before the apostle John. It's not what John is teaching or what Jesus is saying, it's what John is seeing. John is watching panoramic scenes describing what is happening on earth and heaven between the ascension and between the return of Christ. A well-known minister, um, theologian, preacher, he says that children may be able to understand the book of Revelation better than adults. Why did he say that? Seems ridiculous. Well, think about it. How, before they can read, how do we communicate with children? How do we teach children before they can read? We have books of pictures. They look at the pictures and they tell you what it is. That's what the book, you'll do better if you just turn through Revelation and just look at the pictures. John, as you walk through the book, John is saying, like he did in chapter 14, he's saying, look at this. Look over here. Look at that. He's saying, and sometimes he just stops and he says, behold, is always followed by an exclamation point. He says, behold, wow, is what he's saying. Wow, what a wonder that is. So after the terrifying scenes of the dark times of the dragon and the two beasts, what scene, what picture does God show John? Then I looked. Here are the words. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. After Satan's onslaught, the lamb's still standing. He is still ruling in glory. And where is he standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. Now in the hymns this morning, did you notice? We mentioned Mount Zion in glory. We think about this, some mountain in glory. Well, let me tell you where it comes from. The area around Jerusalem was called Zion. Jerusalem sat on a mountain. It wasn't down in the plains. Jerusalem was on a mountain. We read all through the gospels. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It means he went up the mountain to Jerusalem. David had conquered Mount Zion. The area around Jerusalem had been conquered by David. Mount Zion came to symbolize in scripture the reign of David and the kings that would follow David, the kings of Israel. Now in Revelation, where is the throne of Jesus? 
We saw it in Revelation 4 and 5. The throne is in glory. He came to take the scroll, to take the deed of heaven and earth and sit on the throne. Remember what we know, we will we'll, in just a few months, it won't be that long, we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what does it say? Of the increase of his government, he'll be a great king. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with justice from this time forth and forevermore. Is he speaking about an earthly throne? No. This is the Mount Zion of glory. The throne of Christ in heaven. The throne of David of Christ in heaven. So John sees the line of Judah in chapter 14. The lamb. And he's standing in triumph. He's not standing in lament. He's standing in triumph. In contrast to what's at the end of chapter 13. Good news. Who is standing with him on that mountain? 144,000. Now we know 144,000 from an earlier chapter. And it's a number. Remember, everything's a symbol. Every picture you see, everything in that picture is a symbol. And the numbers are symbol of something much larger. 144,000. I mean, that's a huge number. And it represents all the people of God. Who was on Mount Zion standing with Jesus? All the people of God were there. The entire church. Now the last we saw of the people of God in chapter 13, they were being slaughtered by the two beasts. The entire church was being eradicated all over the earth. But what was the end of that great, horrific time of suffering? The result was that after all of Satan's effort, that's what Jesus is saying, after all of his effort, all the people of God are home in glory on Mount Zion and they're with Jesus. They came through the dark time, all of them. Not one of them is missing. What's it say? What, what does, it, what does this, the verses say there? That they are marked by the name of the Lamb and by the name of the Father on their foreheads. It's what it says in chapter 14. Not only says they're, they're there, the 144,000, but it says they're marked with the mark of Jesus, with the mark of the Father. They were marked on earth, sealed, protected, Remember when the angel came from glory, he said, hold back all these things. Hold back all these bad things. Hold back all the power of the Antichrist until I have sealed my people. Remember the angel coming forth from glory to seal God's people? That's the seal. And it's on you. And it's on me. What a powerful scene in response to the horrific events of chapter 13. Now, I want you to take a little detour with me. I think this had to take place. Now, remember, John has a long history. He's writing this as an old man. He can remember back all those times with Jesus on earth. I think this had to take John back to another time that he was on a mountain with Jesus and saw, saw something just as incredible as this. Let's read it. It's in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now imagine this, his face shone like the sun. It was so bright they couldn't even look. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when hold a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces terrified. And Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, it's important to know this. When did Jesus give them this experience? In chapter 16. Remember the chapter 17 starts. And after six days, well, what happened six days previously? Jesus had said to them, who do you say that I am? And the disciples had confessed, you are the Christ. And they just didn't say you're the Messiah. They said, you are the son of the living God. <laughs> Jesus confirmed that with his words. He confirmed it. He said, you're absolutely right. And you know what? You didn't get this because you're brilliant. You got it because my father in heaven revealed it to you. We all know that passage, right? Well, six days after that, he says, I'm going to set this firmly in your mind. You confess that I was the Christ, the son of the living God. I'll show you I am. And he gave them this vision. They were blown away. They had said the words, but they hadn't realized the glory of it all. And who appeared with Jesus when he was transfigured before them? The Jesus of glory. There was Moses and there was Elijah. So you had two prophets from the Old Testament and three apostles from the New Testament, all of them standing together. Do you see it? It was the church of the Old and New Testament. I think that what happened on the mountain that day was a preview of Revelation 14. Jesus knew, I'll be standing on a mountain with you. It will be Mount Zion. And I'll be standing there with the whole church. John had to remember that. You know, you're going to come to this place. You will come through, Jesus was saying, you'll come through the tribulation, you'll come through the darkness of this world, and you will stand with me. That's the one promise you have. You're sealed. No matter what it is you're facing, if you're here at the worst time, that consummate antichrist, even if you're martyred, you're marked, and you're going to stand there on Mount Zion with Jesus. That's the message. One of the great preachers of our day has been Dr. Eric Alexander of Glasgow, Scotland. He's retired now. You remember him. He visited us many, many times at Independent. He said that this passage in Revelation 14 reminded him of the story that we read this morning in 2 Kings chapter 6. The king of Assyria 
He kept everything that he planned, everything that he did militarily. It seemed like Israel knew ahead of time. And finally, so exasperated, he says to his court, all right, who is the traitor in here? Who's a friend of the king of Israel telling him everything? And they said, it's not one of us. There's a prophet down in Israel. His name's Elisha. And he's telling the king of Israel everything that you're saying, even in your own bedroom. The king says, go find out where he is. I'm going to, I'm going to bring him here. I'm going to put an end to this. They said, well, it's a known fact that he lives down in Dothan in Israel. So he sends the Syrian army, the most powerful army in that day. He sends it to Dothan. So the servant of Elisha wakes up one morning, walks outside. <laughs> There's the Assyrian army all around Dothan. He runs back inside and says, you don't believe who's outside. There's a whole army out there. It look, they look like several thousand Assyrians. What are we going to do? And Elisha walks out and looks. He said, don't worry. The one with us is much greater than the one with them. And he says, Father, open his eyes so we can see what I already know and what I've seen. And suddenly... This servant sees these fiery chariots and these great horsemen that are around Elisha and around Dothan over it all. Just so. The beaten and battered Christians living in the horrid persecution of Rome, as they looked out and they saw they were surrounded by the great armies of Rome, by the great culture of Rome, the great culture of the Antichrist, they needed to be reminded that the ultimate authority, the ultimate power rested in the Lamb, rested in the Father. That was exactly that's exactly what Elisha was teaching his servant. The real authority, the real power does not lie in that army from Syria. It doesn't lie in the king of Syria. Let me ask you a question. In September of 2022, where does all the power and authority reside? Now, I want you to answer that question right now. I want you to answer it. And don't give me a rote Sunday school answer. Well, I'm in church. I've got to say God. No. Let's put the question this way. As you live your life tomorrow, what will, the way, what will your life say about who holds the authority and the power? I can tell you, everybody in this room, no matter what, I don't care if you're in a grocery store. I don't care where you are, what you're doing. You're either going to be living your life like the power and authority resides in you or in your neighbors or in your school or the people around you or the power and authority lies in Nashville or it lies in the United States, it lies in China or it lies in the UN. You're, we're going, our lives are going to reflect that. Tomorrow, what will your life reflect? I'm afraid that 
too many times in my life that my life is saying to the world that the power, the real power and authority lies somewhere else but in God, in his throne, and in Christ. Charles Colson tells us a story about Henry Kissinger. I think when he's Secretary of State, and he used, he's, Colson said he would walk into Nixon's office every single morning and say the same sentence. Mr. President, today we will discuss things that will change the course of history. They didn't do much to change the course of history. Not really. But that's what, that's what we think. We want to think that about ourselves. That I, power, even, even little me, that the power and authority it rests in me. This is my life. I'll do with it what I want to. We all know that inside the Beltway in Washington, that's what they think. All the power and authority resides here. It's ours, and we want more. But chapter 14 tells us, after the Antichrist, after Satan has done his worst, it tells us that there's only one ultimate authority and power. And in this passage, Jesus is shouting that in triumph into the darkness on this earth. The picture of God's redeemed here is beautiful. The people of God, the people of God in this passage, did you notice, what were we doing? What will we be doing? What are we doing? The people of God have been given, what's the greatest difference? What is the greatest difference between the world and the church? Between the world and the people of God? What's the greatest difference? Worship. The world can copy a lot of our morality. You'll never see the world copy worship, not the worship of God. That's what we're doing here this morning. It's what they were doing in chapter 14. Look at it. They've been given the gift of worship. Look at it. Verses 2 and 3, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. You know, we need, as Presbyterians, we need to see this. We're much too quiet in our worship, in our singing. Look at it. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and it sounded like the loud thunder. Now, you think the voice is the voice of God, don't you? It's not. The voice I heard was the sound of many harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. This loudness like thunder was the worship of the people of God. Who in Memphis will see our worship and say, where's that thunder coming from? Wow. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. Isn't that a strange thing? Only one group of people could do this. We ran into this before. I would love to stop right here and give you a test. Make you raise your hands and say, who can tell me where we saw this before in the book of Revelation? And if you raised your hand, I would, I would say, okay, you've got to tell them. And I'm going to tell you if you're wrong. So I'm not going to do that. So, so in Revelation 4 and 5, it talks about, in Revelation 4, it talks about the people of God singing hymns. All of heaven was singing hymns to God the Father. Those hymns were about creation. 
And then the Redeemer in chapter 5 comes on the scene. The Redeemer comes into heaven returning from his victory, from in his ascension, and he takes the scroll. And all of heaven breaks out, and they're singing what? A new song, and it's in contrast to the old song in chapter 5. Now, we're still in chapter 4, we're still singing hymns to God the Creator. But there's added hymns to the Redeemer. That's the songs they were singing here. The angels in heaven. If an angel appeared here this morning, Gabriel appeared here this morning, you would fall on your faces. And we would all fall on our faces thinking it was God. And the angel Gabriel would say, don't you dare worship me. You're turning me into an idol. You worship God. But do you know that that archangel cannot sing. He'll never sing a song about his redemption, about Jesus dying for his sin. He never fell. It's the sons of Adam that fell, the sons and daughters of Adam that fell. They need redeeming. And so we sing a hymn, and the rest of heaven just looks on, shaking their heads, saying, wow, the king, he died for them. They've not only been given hymns to sing, but they have a different lifestyle. Look at verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. If these who are, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for, for God from the Lamb, in the Lamb. And their mouth was, in their mouth was, no lie was found. And they're blameless. I need to pick up my glasses. Some of you can see that they fell and you're sitting here thinking you're not going to pay attention to me because you're just watching for me to step on my glasses. So they have been redeemed. They've been rescued. So I know what you're thinking. You're looking at this and saying, well, I'm not going to be on that mountain. I'm no virgin. Yes, you are. You are. You see, this is not talking about the physical, intimate relationship between husbands and wives. You know, God made that. If this seems to insinuate that that's, that that's wrong, that virgins are holier and pure than other people. No. It was God that made that sexual relationship. It's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. It was given to us for our pleasure, the pleasures husbands and wives inside the confines of marriage and it was given for procreation so that's not what he's saying it would be the it would be in contradiction with all the rest of scripture but in the old testament when the prophets came and the people of israel were following after idols you know what he called them he said you've gone a whoring you're committing adultery against god he's talking about spiritual adultery in here and he says, these people, wherever the lamb goes, they follow. The lamb goes to martyrdom, they go to martyrdom. The lamb goes on the mountaintop, they go on the mountaintop. The lamb goes to worship, they go to worship. And there's no lie in them. It is an honest profession of faith. We fail, yes, but we get up and we keep following the lamb so that we're not lying. We profess our faith in Christ and we're not lying about it. What a scene. 
as I've said, we're at the end. Is it not powerful? Is this not powerful? CCRC, Christ Covenant Reformed Church, we will be in that number. That's what Jesus wanted you to see in Revelation 14. No matter what you go through, no matter what you suffer for Christ, no matter what darkness you may traverse, even if it's martyrdom, this will be where we'll, we, where we'll be in the end. Sometimes we're like, we're like Elisha's servant. And we go to, to Jesus and we say, look at this mess. If you're on your throne, what, what, how could this be happening? And Jesus turns to us like he did the apostle John. And he says, have you not professed that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God? And he's taken us up on the mountain of transfiguration with John and Peter and James with Moses and Elijah. And we've seen the vision and we say, that's who Christ is. And he reminds us. And then he turns us to Revelation 13 and there's all this horrific bloodlust. The people of God's blood is being shed all over the earth. And Jesus says, I know all about Satan. I told you about him. I told you the very, in the, you know, you've heard it for the last two weeks. Jesus says, I've told you the worst of the worst of the worst. I know about it. So just turn on past it and get to Revelation 14. And you look at the vision there. And you're standing with your brothers and sisters with me on Mount Zion. There's a prayer that I pray for people. I've prayed it for people in your families, many families in this room. When their months or weeks or days or hours away from dying, there's a prayer that I pray for people who are at that point. I pray, Father, cause this individual to look forward, not with resignation, not resigned that he's going to die, but cause him to look forward with anticipation. May look forward with anticipation. May look forward in the power of the Holy Spirit with excitement that he will soon be in glory. There was a saint in the first congregation I served as an ordained minister in Cedar Bluff, Virginia. His name was Mr. Fletcher, Earl Fletcher. And I could literally keep you here the rest of the afternoon, tonight, and all next week telling you Earl Fletcher's stories. He only had a high school education, but I watched doctors and lawyers sit at his feet, come to him just for his wisdom. He had third degree silicosis 
He had worked in the mines. He'd been a superintendent in the mines all of his life. And he had third-degree silicosis. He should have been year, dead years before. Should have gone home to glory years before. But I went to see him in the hospital. Now, they didn't think he was going to live. He lived 15 more years. And he was 70, about between 70 and 75 then. He lived 15 years after that. But I really thought he was dying. And I didn't, this man was a powerful man just by his character. He didn't have a lot of money, but he was an elder in the church. I sat down, I read some scripture with him and I prayed, but I didn't pray this prayer. I prayed. I said, Father, I know that you're building your church in Cedar Bluff and you can do it without Mr. Fletcher. Father, I pray that you leave him here. I pray that you heal him and make him well. I thought I was praying a great prayer. Tell you the truth, I, I had cold chills. I was really, I thought, the Lord's in this, in this. And I looked up and Mr. Fletcher was aggravated. He looked at me. He said, why did you pray that prayer? I said, because I want you to get well. He said, well, if it's all the same to you, John, I'd rather go home to glory. Now, he had a wonderful, wonderful wife, Maggie Fletcher. She's beautiful. She was awesome. He just wanted to go home. He just wanted to go to Mount Zion. That's what I want. That's what I pray for you. That's what Jesus, we say, oh, Jesus, give me that vision. And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say the same thing he said to me all week long. John, I've given you the vision. What do you think the story in 2 Kings 6 is all about? What do you think the story, John's story at the Mount of Transfiguration, what do, you, what do you think that was all about? What do you think Revelation 14 is all about? You don't think I gave you the vision Oh, folks, just latch on to the vision and see it in the power of the Holy Spirit and say with David, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I'm a pilgrim and I'm on my way to glory and nothing can stop that. Amen.